If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Matt Liner, and you're listening to Reign of Troy Radio. Reign of Troy Hotline. Alicia, Michael, what's going on? We know you have takes. We have takes. Why can't we just win a game? Can I blame Bob Connolly for this? Could I put on a zebra shirt and just go out there? Get Michael Castillo on the phone. <laughs> Scratch. Up against the wall. Can't explain that what I'm feeling right now, guys. Oh, I can't believe USB is five and seven and not going to a ball. Oh. All right, Trojan fans, turn up the volume. It's time for Reign of Troy Radio. Here's your host, Michael Castillo. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Reign of Troy Radio, episode 300, coming to you on Thursday, February 7th. We are going to wrap up USC's 2019 signing day efforts and talk about so much more including your emails and your voicemails and all that stuff here on this episode as always you can follow us on twitter at reign of troy like us on facebook facebook.com slash reign of troy be sure to subscribe to us on itunes stitcher tune in overcast google play and spreaker our bonus episodes are on patreon patreon.com slash reign of troy our email address is reign of troy at fansided.com and our phone number is 213-373-1872 i'm your host michael Castillo, join along with my co-host Alicia Deratol. Hello, everybody. Hello, Alicia. It is glad to be back. It's been a little bit of a break, as in we're two days late because we had to cancel the other night. You canceled at the last minute. We weren't able to record, and uh, but it worked out because now we can put the, put up this episode, and it's right after signing day, so we can talk about everything that went down on signing day. I love how you keep trying to pin the cancellation of this podcast on on me. Um, I think it was a, a dual cancellation, Michael. Either way, either way, it works out because, yeah, on, on Monday we would have just sort of talked about what was potentially to come, a lot of speculation. I prefer having actual straight-up signees to be able to talk about, to be able to talk about players that USC did and didn't get rather than just be floating in a in a maybe this and maybe that, getting to deal with some absolutes here. I think it's a little bit more interesting. So, yeah, good, good. I mean, it's been a weird signing day, but it's still always good to jump on and podcast right after signing day to kind of get a feel for everything that's going on. Yeah, and if you're a Patreon subscriber, you didn't go hungry because, Alicia, you put up a second of short this week to break down signing day going into it. So that was up there over on Patreon, along with a RotBot's Choice episode that we dropped on Friday. We're going to give you a little bit of a preview here at the end of this episode. So listen all the way to the end. Listen to the first five, six minutes of that. If you like it, head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Troy, where you can subscribe for as little as 
5.55 a month, get all of our bonus episodes, or you can subscribe for 10 bucks a month, and you get not only all of our bonus episodes, but you get to join our Slack channel with our Rot crew and talk to all of us all the time, talking about USC football, talking about whatever it is that anyone wants to talk about. It's uh, it's a fun time. Yeah, I love the Slack. I love the the Slack group, the Rot crew. Love uh, love chatting with all the peoples all day long. About random stuff, sometimes, most of the time, USC stuff, but also random food stuff and, and other things. So, yeah, I encourage anyone who's interested in that to, to go sign up. And even if you're not, you know, check out the, the, the 555 tier. See if you like the bonus episodes that we're putting out. See if if you sort of like having, being able to open up your podcast catcher and see a new episode a little bit more often. I know, personally, my own podcast addiction, addicted ways... Uh, that's a really great feeling when I open up my podcast catcher and I have a ton of episodes to, to listen to and not basically clean out of anything. So check it out. Yeah. Patreon.com slash Troy is where you can become a member of uh, Club 55 or The Rock Crew. So go do that and we'll love you forever. But let's get into this episode, episode 300. Start with the news up next. All right, Alicia, USC went into signing day not feeling too great, but sort of okay. Sort of, sort of, eh, eh, eh. Not the signing day that we're used to uh, in USC country for a variety of reasons. Number one, um, the early signing day has really made regular signing day kind of lessened. And I hate that personally. I really hate the two signing days. I really hate how the December one has become sort of the signing day. While it's not, that one doesn't get the coverage, doesn't get the national coverage. It doesn't feel like signing day. It, it doesn't get, you know, the the whole day on ESPNU and all that kind of stuff. And yet we get to this one and everyone signed already and just feels ho-hum. I am in total agreement. The timing of the December one is horrible because there's too much going on outside of recruiting. It was always nice to have December to ramp into January, which was then all about recruiting. And then February was like the the national holiday of of college football where it all came together in one big wild lead up and one big wild day. And they've kind of neutered it by by splitting it in two and then by having the December one where it is. uh, There was some discussion. I think Mike Pialucci on, on Twitter was talking about how like having the signing day so close together is a problem too. If they just had one, I don't know, at the start of August, sure, it would be problematic for fall camp and all that, but at least you would have some use for it where players could sign and then not have to be dealing with recruiting during their senior seasons, but also you would then discourage a lot of people from signing early with no reason. There are so many players who signed in December with no reason for doing it and locked themselves into situations that they didn't need to be locked into if they had just waited. And that, I mean, that, that response is going to be something we're going to look out for as we go forward, because the, the big new thing was to sign in December. Maybe players are going to start to realize that they can wait and it it behooves them to wait. I mean, look at all these guys. Look at half of the guys that, that USC brought in on Wednesday, half of them benefited greatly from waiting it out and then being the subject of more 
direct attention from schools who were just trying to fill things in. You saw a lot of a lot of big time programs, USC's and Ohio State's and and those kinds of things going, you know, going toe to toe for three star recruits because there were some few left. So the I think college football, the college football world needs to adjust to this. But in general, I feel like signing day, which was a great thing, has been totally neutered. And it's all the early signing period's fault. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. And then if you want to talk about USC signing day, why it's a little ho-hem, uh, we can talk about that uh, here as we go. Uh, USC went into the signing day wanting to sign their commitments. They had a few of them. Puka Nakua, who decided not to sign. He is delaying his his signing. He is going to be deciding between USC, Oregon, and Washington. Stay tuned to that. Um, kind of a big one for USC because he's someone you would want at wide receiver. But him potentially not being there, and he is technically committed to USC, but... I mean, he's not really, right? Because if he would have been committed, he would have signed. Yeah, I think I'm looking at him as a target as opposed to a commit because, like you said, if he truly was a commit, then he would have already put pen to paper. So the fact that he hasn't put pen to paper shows that he is not actually committed. Yeah, that's a position of need for USC all of a sudden at wide receiver because SC has lost Sprue McCoy. SC has lost Josh Amaterbebe. They've lost Randall Grimes and Trayvon Sidney and all these guys uh, that have really cemented the depth. Well, Puka Nakua could have come in and immediately started to help for all that stuff. And him going, potentially, if he doesn't pick USC ultimately at the end of the day, would be a huge loss for USC. We'll see if the Trojans can hold on to him. Kyle Ford also committed to USC going into signing day followed through and did sign the four-star receiver out of Orange Lutheran. USC also gets signatures from Jalen Watson, a three-star Juco corner, and Kaulana Makaula, a three-star safety out of Punahou in Hawaii. Uh, those three guys sign as expected. Yeah, getting Kyle Ford was the big thing. You know, Puka Nakua and Brew McCoy were not the only wide receivers in this class who were sort of potentially looking around and their commitments weren't a sure thing. And obviously USC lost Brew McCoy and obviously USC is now in danger of losing Puka Nakua. The latest crystal balls on him are to Washington, for instance. And losing Kyle Ford on top of that would have been a big problem. There was there was a concern when USC lost Cliff Kingsbury that he would be possibly rethinking his decision, but USC getting Graham Harrell back in clearly helped reassure him. And he's now USC's top rated recruit in this class. And he's, he's a guy who's compared to Juju Smith-Schuster. He's that kind of receiver, and he has that kind of talent. If anyone was paying attention to recruiting over the summer, he was absolutely tearing up the camp, the camp circuit. He was just on fire and became one of those top-level uh, athletes that you see out there. Unfortunately, five games into the Orange Lutheran season, he blew out his knee, and he now faces a, a, a long recovery from that. But doesn't take away his talent, especially the way the guys now come back from those kind of knee injuries. They're not career enders the way that they used to. So getting Kyle Ford as a foundational piece for the receiving core down the line, especially since you're going to lose Michael Pittman after this year, even if he has to take a red shirt, you now set yourself up really well for 2020 and 2021 as far as uh, his participation goes. As for the other two, just huge for depth in the secondary. Basically everything that happened this January has been all about depth in the secondary and 
You get a Juco guy who who's a corner who can play safety. That's a big deal because he's going to be a little bit more uh, mature having those two years in, in Ventura College. And then with Makaula, you've got a, another guy who's also versatile. He comes in as a three-star safety, has played corner in high school. He's 6'3". He has the size. And he's a guy who was really upping his game uh, in the in the All-Star Games in this January. He, he went to the Polynesian Bowl, was one of the standout performers in the practice leading up to the Polynesian Bowl, and had an interception in that game, was really drawing rave reviews from the scouts that were there. So even though he's a really low-rated three-star, he's the kind of low-rated three-star who you sometimes think, if this kid grew up in L.A. and not Hawaii— or even you know if he if he was somewhere in the south like how much more attention would he be, would he have gotten from the recruiting services and and would he be a higher ranked uh, recruit coming into this cycle because he's got the size he's he's quick for his size he's got really really top level instincts and the 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 thing that I've paid most attention to as far as a lot of these guys in this recruiting class which if you're trying to find silver linings for what has you know been a disappointing class. The vast majority of them are coming away with sort of the keywords that I look for, uh, competitiveness, intensity, passion, those kinds of buzzwords that I, that I like to hear in recruiting. That's the, the, the word on Makaula. So he's a guy who continues USC's Polynesian run, uh, particularly at safety. So hopefully USC can you know hit pay dirt there again. Yeah, SC continues to, uh, to, to mine Hawaii. Uh, it's kind of become a pipeline state a little bit. I was thinking about this the other day. It, it, it is crazy to think if you named the top five, top top ten college football players of the decade, how many of them are from Hawaii? I think there's three. Oh, you because you got Marcus Mariota. You got Mariota. Tua Tagovailoa. And Tagovailoa. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you got a really good point there. I well, mean, you can make an argument; those are three of the top five. Absolutely, and, and which is think, insane to think about. And you, you, but that's that's sort of a reflection of how the Polynesian, the sort of Polynesian explosion in college football, where I think that uh, programs are starting to understand that the Polynesian community is is ripe with football players. They're they're they are passionate about football in in a lot of these communities, and they're churning them out, and that maybe they're not. Like I said, like a lot of these guys are not in these, you know, hotbeds of you know, Texas football or California football, but they're starting to get there. I mean, just think about the Polynesian Bowl. A couple of years ago, the Polynesian Bowl was a little nothing. And now it's being broadcast on, on CBS and it's a huge uh, destination. So, yeah, I think the Polynesian communities are really growing in, in the sport and Hawaii is is the center of all of that. Exactly. Uh, moving on, let's talk about the guys USC picked up on the eve of signing day on Tuesday night. Three-star safety Dorian Hewitt, SC gets him out of Texas, North Shore High School, the state champs in Houston. Uh, by the way, did you ever see the video of how they won the state championship on a Hail Mary? The Hail Mary? Yeah. Yes, I did. I, yeah, I pretty, had seen that. I had seen that video before I even knew who Dorian Hewitt was. So it was it was funny when I was doing research on him going, oh, he played for that team. Yeah, uh, it was a team. good moment. That team. 
Yeah. Uh, he is the 1744th recruit in the country. <laughs> um, but, you know, he was committed to Syracuse before. He ultimately decommits from the Orange and commits to USC, signs with USC a day later on signing day. And then there's Jaden Williams, a three-star safety uh, out of Corona Centennial. He was someone who Washington wanted, and ultimately he goes to USC. He was the 1343rd overall recruit. Uh, the Those two guys are the 142nd and 113th safeties in the class. Yeah, not exactly going to light up the recruiting board in terms of rankings, but they're guys with intriguing skill sets. So Dorian Hewitt is a guy who has really, he's very, very quick. Uh, he's hes kind of a, a track speed kind of guy. And he played for a state champion and he, he played in that program. So, uh, you know, he's not the end-all be-all uh, prospect, but there, there are little things about his game uh, that make him an intriguing prospect that USC is going to take a chance on, especially when USC needs the depth at safety. He's a, he's a safety who can also play cornerback. Again, that versatility that USC is clearly coveting uh, in these, in these guys that they, that they were going after to, to scramble to finish out this class. Most of them are corners who can play safety or safety who's safeties who can play corner, which fits right in with what USC needs as far as the depth of being able to move a guy from corner to safety the way that they did with a Janie Harris, the way that they did with Chase Williams, the way that they're going to do with guys fitting them into the nickelback spot. All of these guys can play any of those three positions across the secondary, and that gives them value. Um, Jaden Williams is is a guy who is the third recruit out of Centennial in this class. So he joins the his teammates, um, Drake Jackson, who's the big defensive end commit the USC got in December, and then the guy that we're going to talk about in a second, Tuasivi Nomura, uh, who is an outside linebacker, so has that connection from Centennial, really building a pipeline to Centennial. And he's also just he's just an athlete. He's an athlete at corner, had two interceptions and six pass breakups uh, as a senior. Six um, one has the right size that USC wants. So again, another guy who maybe is a project, but there's enough of a competitive streak there, enough of of, of the right mindset that. Maybe he he makes something better of himself than that number of you know thirteen forty three as far as the the rankings are concerned. Yeah, it's weird when you look at USC recruiting. You always see guys that oh they're the fourteenth best overall recruit. They're the twelfth this or whatever. When you get to seventeen hundred and whatever the hell it is, like that that's insane. But the other thing to look at it is. The top 100 guys, right? Like those, really the top 300 guys, all all the blue chip, blue chippers, four, your fours and five star guys, they are evaluated so often. Whereas the three star dudes, once you get past like 500, I feel like they're all in the same boat. Here's a, here's an example of that. This is my favorite example of that. I just talked about Kaolana Makaula, right? So he ranks uh, 1,285 nationally in the composite, right? That's mostly because Rivals ranks him as a two-star. 24-7 Sports ranks him number 669. So that's significantly higher than the, you know, 1,200 number if you're just looking at the 24-7 sports. And you sort of have to, you have, you have to think that may just reflect that the 24-7 sports recruiting service, who has, a, I think, a stronger presence on the West, a few more established guys in the West who maybe have seen him more often, are ranking him higher, where so maybe somewhere like Rivals just 
maybe saw him once, maybe even didn't see him live or, or in anything like that if he wasn't doing the camps, then you could end up with a ranking that just sort of sits there and you never update it. And, you know, you're not you're not getting the full tally of what that player is. And, and there's a lot of reasons one way or another that a player ends up that way. I mean, granted, Dorian Hewitt and, and Jaden Williams are guys who are in recruiting hopeds who will have had opportunities to go to a lot of camps and to be seen. But still, you this is why the recruiting rankings are a little bit hard to gauge because, like you said, like the difference between the 600th player in the class and the 1600th player in the class there's a there not everyone they're not being seen by every scout the way that a five star guy is getting so much more input it's all regional and it's all a little bit more shaky so it's hard it's hard to say and and that's not to say to bank on him because we we always go back to odds right a, a five star guy has more of a probability to pan out to be a star compared to a three star. There's also a million more three stars. So that's just how it is, period. But moving on, let's get into the sign day decision makers here. Uh, we'll start with Tuasivi Namura, a three star outside linebacker from Corona Centennial. He picks USC. He is the 763rd uh, national recruit. Clay Helton, in his press conference afterwards, called him a Tasmanian devil and compared him to Chenanawosu. I'd say it's a pretty good comp. Really good. I had, uh, there was a moment of, remember, we have that clip of Steve Sarkeesian talking about Sam Darnold. There's a little bit of a Sam Darnold moment for Clay Helton, just the way that he was kind of brushing over a lot of the guys, but he stopped to really dig in to describe uh, the, the the potential that they see in Namora. So, you know, take that for what it for what it is. He's an interesting prospect because he's an outside linebacker who has also played safety. You sort of get the Achenawosu comparison because there's that sort of safety background, but then getting bigger and bigger moves for more more and more closer to the to the line of scrimmage has that kind of wild, just instinctual. Like I'm talking about the, again those buzzwords that I'm talking about where. You're looking for a mentality as opposed to an athleticism, and that's what he seems to have. I love the Tasmanian Devil uh, description. Just if, if you ever describe a player as a Tasmanian Devil, to me, especially on defense, you're giving them very high praise because that means that they have an intensity and a ferocity and a mean streak that you kind of want in a guy who's going to be out there rushing the passer or in pass defense, you know, going one-on-one with with. Uh, with tight ends and with all sorts of other matchups that, that they end up in. So he's a, he's a super intriguing prospect that uh, I think is going to be really fun to watch and see where he grows and, and how he grows once he gets onto campus. Yeah, yet another linebacker. SC is really stocking up on those, and they're definitely stocking up on defensive backs. The other pickup USC gets on Wednesday, Adonis Ote, a three-star corner out of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Alicia, quick trivia question. Which college is in Murfreesboro, Tennessee? Oh, uh, Middle Tennessee State? Correct. Middle was, Tennessee State. Yeah. I was wondering why I recognized Murfreesboro, and you know what is why, why? Because when I was researching offensive coordinator possibilities, uh, who who was it that is the offensive coordinator at Middle Tennessee State? What's his uh, is name? Is it a Franklin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tony Franklin. Yeah. Uh, that's why I recognize that city, but I didn't put it together until now. So thank you. Yeah. That was fun. I'll be, I'll be in Murf- Murfreesboro th- 
four months from now. I'm super excited. So, uh, and I'll give a report. Maybe I'll go to Adonis Ote's house and talk to him. Probably not. <laughs> uh, he picks USC over um, Arkansas. He had been committed to Arkansas. He flips from the Razorbacks to USC, the 531st nationally ranked recruit. 5'11", 180. He's another guy who could potentially end up being a diamond in the rough here. We'll see. I think the biggest story with him really goes back to what all of these guys SC has gotten lately. So many of them have been Greg Burns recruits. He has pulled in a ton of these guys. When you look at Adonis Ote, uh, you know, Jaden Williams, Dorian Hewitt, Jalen Watson, all these guys in the defensive backfield that Burns is bringing in, which is huge because what did we talk about all last season? how SC had no depth at safety because they had lost so many dudes. They had lost Akili Ross. They lost Bubba Bolden. Uh, Isaiah Polamau to an injury. They lose uh, Telenor Hufanga to an injury. All these guys, and they had nobody left. And now SC's really able to stockpile all these defensive backs, guys who can play corner and safety, which really boosts those numbers there. Absolutely. I mean, again, like I said, that's the theme of the day is guys who can play corner or safety, uh, he Adonis Ote is a guy who started out as a safety. He's played corner later in his career. Uh, very interesting because as I was talking about Makaula being a weird look at the look at the rankings and see big discrepancies here. It's the flip side for for Adonis Ote. He ends up being five thirty one nationally in the composite because Rivals rates him as a four star. Rivals has him thirty sixth among corners in this class. Uh, and, and a lot of that is because he drew a lot of interest early from the big hitters in the SEC, Alabama, Tennessee, uh, Auburn. All of these schools were after him uh, over the summer, and he ultimately committed to Arkansas in August. Meanwhile, you look over at what 24-7 Sports thinks of him, and 24-7 Sports has him ranked 1,107th and 102nd among corners. So again, we're dealing with vastly different opinions of a player uh, that you're sort of just trying to to make sense of. Either way, Adonis Ote is a, is a guy who um, has again those the the buzzwords that that you want to hear, which could be nothing because half of the recruits out there get described this way. But he's a guy who's instinctual. He's a guy who has quickness. He closes down quickly, and and he has that sort of footballing mentality where he's going to go out and hit you, and and he's going to go out and and punish you in the secondary. So. I t- I like the attitude at least from from what uh, from what you can see from you know far away where you're just watching a huddle video uh, which doesn't tell you too much but at the very least you're going to you you now have this big group of DBs who are all going to filter into the corner and safety and that's going to be half of fall camp is going to be figuring out who is actually who is going with the safeties who's going with the corners who's going with the nickels but you now have this big group that you are like we always talk about with five stars, your better chance of, of panning out. Well, you've now brought in eight DBs in this class, which means you're giving yourself the chance of, yeah, probably four of them aren't going to do anything for you, but you might hit on on the other four. You might hit on three of, three of them and get real strong contributions from them. And that's not even mentioning a guy like Britton Allen, who signed in December, who has the same qualities as a guy who can play corner nickel and safety and that's not talking about Trey Davis who's a guy who's a a track speed kind of guy that they're hoping to build into something at corner and that's not talking about Max Williams who was a guy that Clay Helton was talking up uh, earlier uh, today in his in his wrap-up presser so 
the DB group, while while nothing necessarily to write home about in terms of the rankings of this DB group, considering USC's brought in five-star guys left and right in, in the past few years, the sheer numbers of it accomplish so much for USC and gives gives USC so much potential that I think Greg Burns and company did did a hell of a job to close out because they started with just two and now they've got eight. And that's a huge class. Yeah. What happens with all those numbers is you're bound to get somebody to pan out, right? Like we've talked about it so many times. If you have five guys, one's going to be way better than you thought. One's not going to be as good as you thought. One's going to get injured. One's going to be okay. And one's just going to be solid, right? Like that's just the odds of how it breaks out. When you have this number of guys, uh, you know, it puts the odds a little bit in your favor, despite them being three-star recruits, but that's what you had to get. Uh, given the situation. Moving on to guys USC wanted to get on signing day. Let's start with Keelan Robinson, a four-star running back out of Washington, D.C., committed to Alabama going into signing day. USC was trying to get him to flip. He ultimately does not. He signs with the Crimson Tide. He was the 15th-ranked running back in the class, someone you definitely could have used, considering SC had lost Jordan Wilmore, who decommitted a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and he would have been quite the pickup. Uh, He was an Alabama commit but there was talk that maybe he would back off that that pledge because Alabama was going after uh, Jerron Ely, a five-star number three running back in the class. So if Alabama had landed him, then maybe there was a possibility of of Robinson looking at USC and he took an official visit to USC and it looked like oh, maybe maybe it would happen. As it turns out, uh, Ely committed to Ole Miss on Wednesday, so that kind of shut the door on that. Uh, but you certainly would have viewed it as a a big, like that would have been the fireworks that USC lacked this signing day if USC had been able to get him. But even so, it just felt like one of those ones that was, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it kind of situation. And so that it didn't happen is is really no surprise. Yeah, you can say the same thing about Inok Vamahi, a four-star offensive guard out of Kahuku in Hawaii. SC really trying to get him at the end of the day. Ohio State sweeps in, and once that happened, you kind of felt like the Buckeyes were going to get his signature. They do. Uh, He is the seventh offensive guard in the class, the number 124th recruit. Of all the guys on the board, he was the big fish for USC to try and get, which is another weird thing to think. Every year going into signing day, the big fish is some elite five-star, and here is Vimahi, the 124th recruit, which is nothing to snuff at, but just not usually what SC is, you know, putting all their eggs in the basket of on signing day. Right. It just goes to show you who was even available uh, in this late signing day. But it was a weird situation. USC was the odds on favorite favorite to land him when early signing day came around. And before the Polynesian Bowl, it looked like, well, he's USC's to lose. And then all of a sudden it just Oklahoma and Ohio State didn't have anybody else to go after. And so there you go with a big dogfight with those big heavy hitters and Vimahi ends up going with the Buckeyes. It's a, it's a weird situation though, because he was going to have to take, at least he's, it seems as though he will take a Mormon mission, which kind of puts the recruitment all into, into a jumble because he's going to be gone in a year for two years. And then will even come back to the school that he committed to. It's it's kind of a weird situation. So that's that will be something to watch with him. Uh, I don't know that he was going to be an instant contributor. Uh, so it's it, it feels like not the biggest thing in the world that USC didn't get him. 
because his impact was going to be shaky to begin with. I don't know if I'd say that. I think that he definitely has the ability to contribute. I mean, look at all the guys that BYU and Utah get to contribute after their mission. Stevie Tukulavatu, a prime example. Um, so Right, but that's we're talking three years down the line. And right, but, but when you look at USC and how they've been able to pull, sign, was it two linemen in the last each of the last two classes? You need anyone you can get. And if you get someone oh, for the sure. future, that's fine too. For sure, but I think Vimahi's value to USC was in the fact that USC hadn't gotten enough offensive linemen and then right. they needed more. But I, I also, part of me wonders if his ranking and his the perception of him is helped a little bit by this was a really weak offensive line class to begin with. So like in another year, he wouldn't be ranked that high because there would be, in theory, more better offensive linemen available. The, the problem for USC is the numbers and USC is going to have to make up for a big time in 2020, but they can make up for it big time in 2020, I guess is, is kind of what I'm I'm trying to get at. And they can potentially make up for it by finding someone in the transfer portal. Yeah, and that would be that would be huge for USC too. Uh moving on, other two guys, SC tried to get Hunter Hill, three star offensive tackle, and Dewan Jones, a three star offensive tackle. Those guys go to Utah State and Ohio State again respectively. Hunter Hill is the one that all of Twitter want to talk about. How could SC lose a guy to, to Utah State? This is the biggest indictment ever, blah, 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 blah. Does not look good, you know, with optics to lose someone to Utah State. 100%. On paper, that looks bad. But there's a million reasons to pick the local school over the school far away. Absolutely. That's why I'm not... Again, it's a bummer that USC couldn't convince him that his future would be brightest at USC. And... That is something that you can be critical of USC for. But when you look at it from Hunter Hill's perspective, he grew up in Orem, Utah. Utah State is right there. Like, you know, it would be local. He wouldn't have to leave his family. Um, and it's also the, the the level of school that he was being recruited at before the early signing period. And again, this goes back to the way that the early signing period has changed the way schools do business, essentially. Guys like Hunter Hill got attention from USC and a couple other Power 5 schools Solely because there was just nobody else that they could look at as as be if you know f- to fill a need on the offensive line, right? So Hunter Hill might be a Utah State level player, and he might see himself as a Utah State level player. And if he thinks that's the best thing for his future, then that's an individual decision. I don't think it reflects necessarily in the big picture on USC in relation to Utah State. Like this happens, for instance, there was the. There was the quarterback in the early signing period who picked UCF over USC. And, and again, I don't think that was a fl- reflection of like UCF is better than USC. I just think it was better fit for him than USC. Sometimes these things are decisions that are made on the micro level and not the macro level. And I and I know there are a lot of people who are like, how could he turn away an NFL future or whatever? Well, maybe he doesn't see himself as an NFL future. Like, you know, there's a lot of reasons that these that these things happen. I don't think it's worth stressing too hard over Hunter Hill because USC would have signed Hunter Hill and everyone would have complained. Oh, another three star. You know, USC's going down the drain. So it's like, you know, one way or another, you get the same response. Yeah. You damned if you do, you damned if you don't. Uh, so that wraps up all the guys USC was trying to get on signing day. Uh, we can look at the decommitments really quick. Brew McCoy, you might remember him. He goes to Texas to Gabriel Floyd, who was committed to USC a freaking forever ago. He goes to Texas along with them. Chris Steele to Oregon. Manuel Allen to Western Kentucky, which means that 
he's probably going to be at USC soon then, right? According to Twitter. <laughs> yep, that's a favorite. Yeah. And uh, Jordan Wilmore signs with the Utah Utes. Uh, so chalk him down for 185 rushing yards in 2021 against USC. We'll see. Uh, class rankings. USC finishes 18th in the country. They are third in the Pac-12 behind Oregon at 7, Washington at 17. The Trojans are three spots ahead of Stanford at 21. That could definitely change, though. Pukunoko, as we talked about earlier, is still on the board. If Washington gets him, they'll slide up to 15th. If USC loses him, which you would assume potentially, right? Like, if he was committed to USC, you would have thought he would have signed right now. It's like when John Tavares didn't sign with the Islanders by July 1st, you knew he was leaving. And you look at USC, and if they lose Pukunoko, they will slide down to 20th. Uh, the 20th ranked recruiting class, which is still third in the Pac-12, just ahead of Stanford. Yeah, this is the lowest recruiting ranking for USC in the recruiting ranking era. Um, You know, records don't go back much further than 2002. And if you look back through 2002, this is the this is the worst class that USC has ever brought in, in terms of just pure rankings. And, and when I say the worst, like, I feel like that's a little bit harsh, because it, it's really... I feel like it's more of a reflection of USC has been outstandingly, amazingly, ridiculously good at recruiting this century. In the recruiting era, USC has been just on a whole other level than most programs out there in recruiting. So when they dip to have the number 18 recruiting class in the country, it feels like it's the end of the world. But really, it's just it's it's not a great class. But it's also not a bad class in the grand scheme of things, and it really is is a, is a sign of how well USC was recruiting that they had five straight top ten recruiting classes and had been pulling in five stars left and right and all of that. And you know USC is absolutely capable of that. I'm not trying to excuse USC for having this class because I think USC's failings resulted in this class. But it's also think about think about this. Washington is putting together one of their best recruiting classes in a long while. And they're barely in the running with USC. Well, there was a stat today, Bruce uh, Feldman put it out, that Washington has nine of the top 50 recruits in the state of California. Nine of the top 50. It's almost 20% if you do the math. And they are one spot ahead of USC. Yeah. And this is USC. I mean, I mean, this is something that I, I wanted also to get here to talk about is I think it's really interesting when you look at the Pac-12 rankings the Pac-12 North is doing very well. Uh, you get Oregon and Washington and Stanford all putting in solid classes. USC is absolutely dipped, but they've dipped at the same time that no one else in the South has taken advantage. I mean, you think about USC creating a, a recruiting vacuum in Southern California, more or less, and letting a bunch of really top level California recruits that USC normally locks up, letting them go elsewhere. Who benefited from that? Oregon did. Washington yeah. did. The SEC did. Who didn't benefit from that? UCLA. Where are you? Well, you put in our rundown this this tweet from Matt Hinton. Uh, the biggest over underachievers in 24/7's 2019 composite rankings compared to their average class rank over the previous four years. UCLA's average ranking from 2015 to 2018 was 15th. They were 43rd in 2019. 43rd. How do you get 43rd when you have Chip Kelly a couple of months removed after beating SC in a year in which? It was a rebuilding year, but you had to feel good at the end of the year if you're a Bruin fan, right? You beat SC and all is right in the world, right? 
you're moving forward, the sky's the limit, you're thinking that things are moving in the right direction, and 43rd when SC falls flat on their face? Yeah, that's... that's, that's it's, it's a real problem for you for UCLA because the, the enthusiasm around UCLA was so high getting Chip Kelly. It was supposed to be, you know, a, a new UCLA where they were taking things really serious and, and dishing out the money to go get Chip Kelly and to get his staff and all of this. His inability to take advantage of USC being in a down year is, I think, UCLA setting themselves up to get to get sort of bit in the behind because USC is only going to be down for so long. I mean, this is the thing that we we always talked about when like thinking about USC during the sanctions era. The little dips that USC had during the sanctions era that UCLA didn't take advantage and win the Pac-12 in those years was going to be a huge missed opportunity, especially when you look at all the talent that they had. I mean, Brett Hundley and, and those those teams were talented teams and UCLA didn't take advantage. This is another year where USC has opened the door for UCLA to really get grab a, a foothold. And they UCLA just stood there and stared and blinked and get, gone like, what? What are we supposed to do? So th- it's going to be really, really interesting to watch what Chip Kelly does, because it's possible he's looking for a certain mentality of player that he's not interested in signing the four and five star guys. Maybe that's it. But that's also the height of hubris because the whole point of Chip Kelly being in Los Angeles was supposed to be you're you're in you're in Los Angeles now. You don't have to gra- scrape the bottom of the barrel for your recruits like you did at Oregon when you were building that. This whole experiment was predicated on he's going to do what he did at Oregon, but with better recruits, with better access to better recruits. Right. Exactly. I mean, isn't that the same thing that when USC brought Cliff Kingsbury over, the idea of bringing Cliff Kingsbury over was, man, what is Cliff Kingsbury going to do with he did all that with three star recruits at Texas Tech? What's he going to do with USC's five stars? Is that that same kind kind of mentality? And and UCLA is just sort of spurning that by saying, well, we don't need the five stars or the four stars or or they're just not doing a good enough job of having people buy in maybe chip kelly is too too broken of a of a brand at this point i don't i don't know where i don't know where that sort of comes from but it you know staying on this matt hinton tweet with with this chart i do also think it's interesting from a usc perspective to talk about this because usc is on that list of underachievers their average recruiting rank uh, from 2015 to 2018 was fourth overall and they are now 18th which is a drop of 14 spots but th- I think I want to point out, like, USC is not alone in that. And I think it's interesting who's also in there. So we talked about UCLA, minus 28 in terms of their rank. Washington State is down, minus 17, which feels really weird to me, considering the year that they just had. Um, You know, BYU is down, but also Utah's not having a good recruiting year. So Utah's not taking advantage of of USC's uh, dip in the the recruiting stuff, falling 13 spots. And then also the big one... Ohio State's not having a good year. They've dropped from, you know, ranking number two over the last few years to 14th. So it's a very similar drop to USC. And it just goes to show this is what happens when you have changes in your coaching staff. And when you have big question marks looming over your program, you're going to experience a dip in recruiting because the elite guys who can pick wherever they want to go, they're going to look at you with some skepticism and go, I'm going to wait it out. And I'm not I'm not sure I'm going to bank on you. I'm going to go. Like Chris Steele, I'm going to go to Florida instead. I'm or um, you know, Enoch Vimahi, I'm going to go to Ohio State. Like, there's different kind of perceptions that are in play here. But USC is not alone in experiencing a recruiting dip. Big legitimate programs also have this happen to them for one reason or, reason or another. So here's my thought about the recruiting dip thing. 
I'm looking at these numbers. Utah is, you know, the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ninth most regressing team in, in terms of recruiting, right? They went from 35th to 48th. That doesn't seem like a big drop to me. Like, there's 130 teams. I think dropping 13 spots is not a crime. I really don't. But isn't that the point, though? Because USC dropped 14 spots and Ohio State dropped 12 spots and Florida State dropped 11. The, the context of UCLA and USC dropping and Utah not gaining, I think, is, you know, a main point that that that's that can't happen if you're Utah. If, if UCLA is dropping and USC is dropping, then you need to go and get some of the remnants of what they would have had in a normal year. And Oregon and Washington are up uh, mostly because of that. And you got to wonder what was going on with UCLA and Utah and all those schools that did not do that. So... Yeah, but let's get into what Clay Helton had to say after signing day and talk about more news up next. Let's see, let's go to new segment numero dos and talk about Clay Helton, his signing day pressure. Uh, started with some injury updates. Stephen Carr is participating. Daniel Matubebe. Is not. Uh, Kyle Ford faces a nine-month rehab similar to Solomon Tuliapupu from last year's recruiting class. Max Williams is working harder than anyone, according to Helton. Uh, that Helton's ever seen be ready for the season and doctors are, quote, blown away by his recovery, according to Greg Biggins of 24-7. Not surprised at all by that in 20-plus years. I'm not sure I've seen another player maximize his talent or come closer to reaching their full potential than Max, an absolute grinder. First of all, can we talk about that that sentence was about somebody named Max? <laughs> maximizing Max Williams' talent. Yeah. Maximizing Good. Max. That's that, that's who he is. That's his new nickname. We'll we'll stick with it. But when you look at all that stuff, uh, Stephen Carr participating is definitely big for USC. Daniel Matabebe, though, has the ship sailed? I think it sailed. I think that Daniel Matabebe is now a luxury player. And I will not be... Like, when I'm doing my camp previews when I'm doing my death chart reviews and and predictions and all of those things where I'm preparing for the 2019 season I'm going to be doing it assuming that Daniel Amata baby will not be available because at this stage you can't assume that you can't assume that he will be a player that will contribute in 2019 because he hasn't played in now I mean how many are, are we are we closing in on two years now since he's had real meaningful contribution that wasn't yeah. hindered it's by injury. A it's a long, long time for a player to go without actively being, you know, part part of the part of the equation. So that really sucks. But that's the reality. I mean, he's my magic man. That's exactly what happens to magic men, isn't it? Just a little bit. Just just a little bit. We we know that for for sure. Uh, Talk about other news. Uh, spring practice is starting March fifth, going through April thirteenth, which means that the uh, spring showcase is not going to be at the end. Yeah, it's the week before. Interesting choice, but that's got to be scheduling with Cromwell Field, and I assume that's where they're going to hold it. I don't think they've officially announced it, but either way, the spring showcase, which just makes me cringe, is, is uh, yeah, I have feelings about it, and they are not 
necessarily enthusiastic, so meh. Yeah, the showcase is on the 6th, right? April 6th? Yes. LAFC play at 12 noon that day at home. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> so that that goes against my thought of that they just could play ha- in. Hold it there. That's where it should be, right? That nope. that absolutely is where it should be. But if I were LAFC being in the middle of my season, there's no way I would let USC come in there with their football cleats and ruin my my field. So Soccer is way more detrimental to grass than football. Let's be real. <laughs> let's let's be absolutely real there. Uh moving on down our list here. Uh, other things for spring practice, Clay Helton says that there's going to be open competition across all positions, an emphasis on fundamentals and technique, more periods devoted to individual work. I think that means they're going to look at the film and then be able to do that stuff. Uh, and then they're going to go full speed as often as they can, but he cautioned about numbers being low. Yeah. Um, if you were hoping for drastic changes in spring camp, uh, first and foremost, Oh, oh, you poor summer child. And number two, this is exactly the response I expected from Clay Helton, uh, even though I am now increasingly triggered by the buzzwords of fundamentals and technique, uh, almost more triggered by that than the situational mastery uh, thing that, that Clay Helton likes to throw out there. Fundamentals and technique are, they are meaningless words that don't actually tell you anything about what USC is going to be doing. Uh, more individual work is, I guess, something somewhat specific that you can cling to as a slight change. But that, I mean, just to note for people, that individual work will not be tackling. And that individual work, I don't think, will depend on full pads. So there's that. Uh, and then I think the most telling thing is him talking about going full speed. The ca- The fact that he already prefaced it with, but we won't have the full team available to us in the spring camp. Like the numbers won't necessarily be great for us in spring camp. That tells you everything you need to know that they're not going to go out there and be in full pads, full contact all the time. It's going to be exactly like it was last year in terms of the breakdowns of, you know, they're going to do a Saturday scrimmage and that Saturday scrimmage is going to have tackling to a point, but like drastic changes are not coming minor changes. Yeah, sure. I think we'll see little things that are different, but not the drastic changes that people want to see. Here's my question though. Is that fair to judge the changes on spring practice? Not necessarily. No, because the spring practice wasn't really the problem. Like last year's spring practice. I don't think that was the core reason why USC had trouble later in the season. Uh, I think, I think that, the in-season stuff was a little bit more of a concern. So I don't necessarily have an, like, I'm not inherently against the way that USC does spring practice, but that's also kind of why I expected it to go this way, where they weren't going to make a big change, because fundamentally, I, I don't know that spring camp needed to be a huge separation from what they've done in the past, and I don't, th- th- these are not bold enough coaches to do that, even if they thought that it was necessary. But at the same time, I'm also... I'm still in that mindset that we that we talked about when USC started throwing out the Notre Dame big changes and flipping around from four and eight to 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 you know being in the playoff really quickly. I'm still judging this team based on a ten and two season, and I would feel more confident in there being a ten and two season as a result if 
it felt like something was drastically different, which may be unreasonable on my part. Yeah, I, I, I get it, though. I, I get it, though. You'd be easier to buy in for sure. Uh, other news talking about Coy Moore, a four-star receiver out of Louisiana, decommitted to USC's 2020 class. He was the number 36 receiver in the class, 195th. So this is next year. Uh, He tweeted out, My relationship with USC became strained with coaching changes. I enjoyed my time as a hashtag fight on commitment. I love USC, but the recruitment is not up to my expectations. I would like to reopen my commitment. There was also a tweet where someone had mentioned T. Martin, and then someone else replied, Would he still be committed if T. Martin was around? And he responded that he would not have decommitted if T. Martin was still around. Yeah, so basically Coy Moore, future uh, Tennessee commit, I would imagine. I'd, maybe, maybe. We will see. We got a we got a question from Brandon who asked, Why is everyone tripping over a 2020 guy? And I think it's the right question. Uh, people were tripping over this because it was a decommitment and the sky is falling around USC. So every little thing that happens yes. is instantly the end of the world. But the fact of the matter is USC could have just won a national title and they still might have lost Coy Moore because they fired T. Martin. And mm-hmm. when you fire your position coaches that has recruiting that 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 will in- impact your recruiting because guys commit to those, those to those coaches. Right. And, in, and in the end. Coy Moore is not the end-all and be-all of wide receiver targets that USC will have in 2020. I mean, it would be one thing if he was a local Los Angeles, you know, modern day or Orange Lutheran kid. Right. He's from from well, Louisiana. Like the Gabriel Floyd was a local guy. Like, you lose yeah. him, I think it matters because it's someone you would have expected to be in the whole way. Uh, when it's someone out of state, um, it's a little bit, a little bit different. Um, but the other thing that goes into, you know, why was everyone tripping... It, it's all about the, the mood around the school. Like you said, if things were going good, nobody would have cared that Josh Amaterbebe transferred. Josh Amaterbebe has barely played in the last two years. I, now, I I'm, don't want to discourage him or say anything you know negative about him or anything, but of all the players that usually transfer, he fits the bill of players that usually transfer. He, going to find a, an opportunity that, that fits best for him and if he finds some place that will play him, great, fantastic. If he feels he's being underutilized, go find a better opportunity, 100%. And that's wonderful. And yet he does that and everyone thinks it's this major indictment of Helton right now. Because Why? Because everything looks bad for Helton right now, period. Absolutely agree on that. Moving on, let's talk about Keith Belton, USC's uh, assistant strength and conditioning coach. He was a guy I mentioned immediately as keep an eye on him solely because I didn't know anything. But what does SC do? SC promotes one from within when possible. And USC players are like, yes, let's do that. Uh, USC put out a video of winter workouts featuring him giving a speech. Then there's players who have jumped on board, all campaigning for him. We've seen this before. Uh, Devin Williams, KB, the movement, let's make it happen. Jonathan Lockin and Antoine Woods tweeted hashtag hire KB. Nelson Aguilar, USC Athletics, make the right choice on your next strength and conditioning coach. Gerald Bowman, big bro, speaking the truth, hashtag hire KB. Antoine Woods again, hashtag hire KB. Alicia, we see this all the time. USC players campaigning for a coach. What do you make of it? I make of it that uh, when you work closely with somebody, you can really like them. And when the time comes that maybe they are up for for a promotion, you think of it as, well, he totally deserves that. 
but you are also probably too close to the matter and you probably should have no part in deciding who does and doesn't get the job in this in this instance i think um i think being liked by players doesn't mean you're qualified to be the head strength and conditioning coach at usc your it would be keith belton's first first full-time gig and like th- that just goes like again clay helton was not qualified to become usc's head coach but usc's players loved him and so of course they were campaigning for him like I understand it, but at the same time, like, I hope there are adults in the room who recognize that the opinions of the players in these instances really don't matter and shouldn't matter. Because the fact of the matter is, if USC wants to change, again, we go back and back and back to this. If USC wants to change the culture, then hiring from within is the wrong thing because the people who are within are a part of the culture. Like, it would be the absolute worst, like, Keith Belton may be great. But it would be the absolute worst idea to persist with exactly what they've been doing before, because what they've been doing before obviously has not been working. Yeah. And I think it goes back to two things. Um, One, if you say that you're going to change the culture this offseason, then by God, change the culture. And if one easy way to do that is make no internal hires this year, at least for the most part. DeForest is the linebacker coach, whatever. But Keith Melton, this is one where... He might be great. He might be fantastic, but it goes back to the whole optics. If you're talking about changing the culture, how do you do that? How do you, how do you just promote from within again? That's the same culture. He's someone that's been around and worked with these players forever. That's not changing the culture. Again, we've said a million times, who knows how much of this is even to blame on strength and conditioning anyways. So it's really hard to gauge that. The other thing I think this is built in for an excuse for Clay Helton because let's say he promotes Keith Belton at the request of all these players, either at the request of all these players or because Helton just wants to promote him. And he gets asked Clay Helton, why did he do that? Not that I'm saying that he's going to, but let's just say in a hypothetical world, he gets asked, you know what his answer is? Well, we weren't going to get rid of Ivan Lewis. So we, we were good, happy with what Ivan Lewis was doing, so we wanted to keep that going, and so we promoted Keith Belt. That'd be the logic behind it, wouldn't it? It absolutely would be, which is why part of me totally believes that USC will just promote Keith Belton, because that's what I would come to expect, is that I don't think they had any intention of moving on from Ivan Lewis, and so it would absolutely follow on brand. But I'm here to point out that that brand is wrong. <laughs> Yeah, just a little bit. Uh, and again, Keith Belton might be perfectly great. Um, but at some point, stop hiring SC guys. A little bit. Anyways, uh, let's get to the mailbag up next. You've got mail. All right, Alicia, it is our 300th episode. 300th full episode. Technically. It's not really our 300th, but it's our 300th full episode. I think it's a big occasion. And you know what? We got a bunch of phone calls because of it. Let's start right here. Hi, guys. Trinise from Orlando. 300 full episodes, man. Holy freaking crap. Those of you who have are newer listeners may not know, but once upon a time, I was an OG host of this podcast. And let me just say that it has gotten leaps and bounds better in the year that Michael and Alicia really took it on full time and have made it what it is. I am 
so proud of you guys. I love that I get to be part of it by calling in and having a meltdown every freaking week. It's fun. I look forward to it. I think about what I'm going to say each time. And um, I can't wait to hear what your next 300 podcasts are about. You guys are amazing. And I just want to leave with two things. One, Michael, I still think your taste test was fraudulent and you need to do it again on video so that we can see it. And two, Alicia, you can always and forever blame Bob Connolly for everything. All right, guys. Until the next season, Trudy's from Orlando. Fight on. Hey, Michael. Hey, Alicia. This is Ryan Abraham from the Parasol Podcast. I've never called into the rant line. I wasn't going to, but Michael kept bugging me over and over on Twitter, so here I am. I'm just kidding. You did not. I just mentioned it. 300 episodes. That is absolutely amazing. I think you guys do such a great job. And, you know, Michael with the, the audio czar uh, doing there and, and Alicia, what she brings and being as, the, you know, the uh, pessimistic Alicia or optimistic Alicia, it's great. I think you guys make a great team. The podcast is my favorite USC podcast to listen to, and I'm, I'm really happy you guys got the 300 episodes. Keep it going, and uh, thanks. I'm still a big fan. Reign of Troy Radio. This is Anonymous from Kobe Land, USA. Long-time listener, one-time texter, two-time caller. Congratulations on uh, 300 episodes, even though I think your math might be a little off, but, you know, Michael's doing it, so it's not all that surprising. I mean, who doesn't like bacon? Anyway, in all seriousness, congratulations, you guys. Uh, I've always enjoyed listening to your show. I look forward to uh, 300 and something odd more. See ya. Michael and Alicia. It's Simon. Congratulations on your big milestone. Michael, it's a miracle despite your horrid, horrid food take uh, that we still uh, are company. No, but seriously, we're, everyone's grateful for the work that you guys do and the kindness that you've shown Travel Hates Thursdays. Uh, you are both awesome and keep up the good work. Hey, Raina Troy. It's your girl, Keely. Just wanted to say congrats on 300 episodes, even though technically it's more, but who's counting? Uh, congrats. You guys are awesome. You make podcasting sound super easy and trust me, it's not. You guys are great, except, you know, sometimes your food takes really uh, irritate me, but congrats. You guys are great. I know I'm supposed to roast. I'm bad at roasting. You can roast me for not roasting you. How about that? Alrighty. Congrats, guys. To my favorite USC website anywhere on the interweb, Rain of Troy, from your second favorite former fan editor behind Bert Gerson. This is Kyle Kensing. Congratulations on 300 podcast episodes. Thank you for making me one-tenth, one-fifth of those episodes. I uh, really appreciate that. Uh, you guys do fantastic work, both in audio and written format, and photography, too. Uh, just seeing the site grow as much as it has over the years has been really awesome to see. All right, take care. Wow, 300 episodes. Congratulations. I mean, you've been with us since those halcyon days of the summer going into the 2012 season. The program was back on track and everything seemed like it would be smooth sailing. And I just want to say, I think the claims that you were some kind of devious mastermind working behind the scenes to cause USC to devolve into an endless circus of content that you could always talk about. Th this idea that you were somehow responsible for all of this, that you were sneaking... <laughs> I don't know what that last call was. <laughs> what? Yeah, Kenny, you're... Shh, shh. You're not supposed to let everyone know. <laughs> oh, that was fun. Yeah, you guys are awesome and really self-serving for us to tell people to call us and congratulate us for, for a 300 episode, but it's a 300 episode that's not really our 300 episode. I, I think it's a big deal. I, I think I think the, the takeaway here, aside from my extreme blushing from all of the, the nice things that everybody said about us, uh, is... Is really that like, yeah, it's not our 300th episode, but we have done a lot of podcasting, Michael. We've done a lot of hours Just of podcasting. Uh, and uh, it's been a very, very, very fun ride. 
But it makes you really sit back and think like, wow, like when we started, I don't even know what number episode was the first time that I was on. But You, you were on the 13th. There you go. I've, so that's a, that's a lot of episodes and it's gone by really, really fast. And Kenny bringing up 2012 just makes me realize that, yeah, maybe maybe we are responsible for this. Do Maybe. you remember your first word on the, on the podcast? <laughs> of course I remember. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Hi. We do need to roast Keely, though. I, and, and the best way to, to roast Keely is by just saying, like, hey, Ryan likes us better than Family Feud. I'll take Ooh, it. Ooh. Burn. Damn. That is true. He did say that. He did. I, I mean, I it's, guess it's, that means have... Family Feud's stock neutral and we're stock up. <laughs> there you go. Just a little bit. Let's go to a call from Brandon. What up, Brandon? Troy. It's your boy, Brandon. I wanted to call because I was listening to the podcast and I heard the guy talking about how the program was over and all of this stuff and how Clay Hilton is a terrible coach or is the worst coach ever. And then he mentioned Lane Kiffin. I have a question. Lane Kiffin, to me, in my estimation, uh, probably was in a position he should not have been in when he came to USC. Uh, but I think he did the best that he could with everything that was going on with the program at that time. I mean, that 2011 season to this day is, is still fun. I still go back and watch games. I mean, if, let's think about what they did. I mean, they won the Pac-12 South um, if they hadn't have been on sanctions. Uh, they were the only team, I think, in the South to have beaten Oregon that year. And I think the only team in the South to have beaten Oregon uh, in a while at that point. And so, like, that team was that team was good. And, I mean, they were good in 2012. It's just they couldn't put things together. The defense was not great. Um, so it gave up a lot of games. And, whoo, uh, Arizona, Arizona State, man, that, that was rough. But, honestly, do we think Clay Helton would have done anything better than what Lane Kiffin did during those sanction years? I mean, he took a team that is arguably – as talented, maybe more talented, uh, to five and seven with no sanction and a weaker division or a weaker conference than what Lane Kiffin has to deal with. I mean, yeah, we, we, we crap on Lane Kiffin great. That's fine. But Lane Kiffin was a better coach than Clay Helton, better recruiter than Clay Helton. And Clay Helton could not have done what Lane Kiffin did with those, with those guys at that time. Uh, I think Lane Kiffin would be a better choice than Clay Hilton right now. I, I honestly believe that. But, yeah, keep doing what you're doing, guys. Peace. Thanks for the call, Brandon. As always, good to hear from you in the off season. And I'm so torn on this because I think you can definitely make a case for, for Lane Kiffin here. But at the end of the day, I think I, I look at what they've done so far to date, and I think you have to side with Clay Hilton, not just because he has the trophies. He has two big ones. Uh, that Lane Kiffin ever got, but he had two big wins in 2016 that I don't think Lane Kiffin ever got. I, I think that the win at Washington was bigger than the win at, at Oregon, and I think the the Rose Bowl win is something that Lane Kiffin can't really touch either. And I think that th we had talked about it before that what Clay Helton was so good at was eliminating the dumb losses. This the ceiling for those Kiffin and Sark teams were very high. But they kept stubbing their toe in dumb losses that prevented them from reaching their potential. The Boston College loss by Sark, the ASU loss by Kiffin, you know, all these things that you put together, um, 
losing to ASU twice that that Kiffin did. You put those together, the the Arizona game in 2012, all these things. Kiffin lost games he shouldn't have. And Clay Helton, before this season, hadn't done that. And Kiffin was kind of always doing that. It's it's tough because I think there is room to give Kiffin a little bit of a break, given that he was in the middle of sanctions, and so it was a different kind of challenge for him. Uh, uh, hold on, hold on. I Back know you up. don't Back believe in the power of the sanctions, but they no, were... No, no, no. I will give you the sanctions, but I will tell you that the sanctions didn't affect the field of play until 2013. So don't tell me that Lane Kiffin had a deal with sanctions in 2011. No, he had well, a deal there with was the a bull, bull ban, ban, which was yeah, part of the psychology was... of that team. And it also prevented him from yeah. going to it. For instance, Clay Helton's best win ever is in the Rose Bowl. Yes, Clay, preventing him from, Lane from getting that Rose Bowl didn't win didn't get himself, to end yes. the 2011 season with the... Like, Lane Kiffin's 2011 was the equivalent of Helton's 2016 in the sense that Oregon is Washington as far as those big wins. And then... That's fair. That's Kiffin fair. never got the chance. No, but, but at the same time, like, Kiffin not getting the chance doesn't mean that Kiffin would have won a big game, a big bowl game, if he had gotten to it. Like, you, it, it's hard to to draw things out across that. But I will give Kiffin a little bit of a break for dealing with the, the issue of the sanctions. But I, I, I don't know. I think that I would be willing to say that Kiffin was a better coach than Clay Helton simply on the basis of Lane Kiffin was far more qualified for the job that he got than, than Clay Helton ever was. And, um, and I think that made him a better offensive coordinator, which allowed him to, to, raise the ceiling of those teams a little bit but I don't think like I I don't think Clay Helton is as far below Lane Kiffin as the perception of him is right now now we could come to a a different understanding by the end of this 2019 season uh, because the the chickens are going to come home to roost on, on Clay Helton but I like I don't know I just think that the 20 the 2018 season was a failure of of Clay Helton's ability to adjust and great coaches adjust. Yeah. That's what happens. But you don't he doesn't lose the credit that that I was willing to give him for what USC achieved in 2017 and what USC did in 2016 just because he proved that he's not a great head coach. I already suspected that he wasn't a great head coach. Uh Lane Kiffin, I I don't think he's a great head coach. I think he was a perfectly serviceable head coach, but he was never going to accomplish that much at USC to begin with. So it's it's a complicated thing, but there's a lot of revisionist history that happens. Like Lane Kiffin accomplished no more than Clay Helton has accomplished is, I think, the big point that I'd like to make. Even while I would say, if you gave me a choice, Kiffin or Helton, I'd probably go Kiffin. I would agree in the sense that you know that he's going to recruit super, super elite players no matter what, even when they're down. I mean, people want to make fun of the 2013 class, but have you ever looked at the 2013 that class? That was an outrageous class. looked at the star rating there? It's the highest star rating ever for a class. It was insane. Even though they only had like, what, 12 signees or whatever it was, which was really low. But I, I don't I don't know. I, I the 2018 is really damning for Clay. And so it's hard to sit here and say Clay's better when Kiffin never went five and seven. I just don't think that there's this, I don't think it's obvious that Kiffin is a for sure thing better than Clay. I think at best they're about even. This year is going to tell us everything because uh, either Clay's going to continue to slide back or he's going to respond. And if he does put up a nine and three or 10 and two season, then he's definitively better than, than Kiffin. In that sense, because he responded to the, to the bad season where 
Kiffin never did at USC. Uh, let's get to a tweet from Dave in Orange County. Uh, if you could make one change to recruiting, what would it be? Uh, we'd fix the signing day situation. Yeah, I'd definitely move it. I'd move it to August. I'd move it to August 1st. Or if you wanted to, to avoid run up with fall camp, you could move it to July, whatever the Wednesday before the first week of August is. Uh, that's- yeah, and so it's only going to be quarterback signing, essentially. Yeah, well, I mean, it, you you would get a lot less people signing, and that would ultimately be good. Uh, if 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 I had to change one thing about USC recruiting, I would have USC take it more seriously earlier, and recognize that the signing period is now December. How would how would you feel if there was no signing day? Well, you can we're free for all, where you could sign whenever you wanted. Yeah, or that you would just enroll when you enrolled. So signing day is the beginning of the signing period, right? Like. You can sign today, you can sign Three. tomorrow, but you couldn't sign last week. So what if you had a situation where there's just a deadline and that deadline is in like April? Hmm. Personally, I would say I don't like that because having a signing day is really good for business. <laughs> um, yes, but I, I'm I'm not, this is not an indictment of you. I think this is an indictment on the situation. I was looking yeah. at our numbers and compared to old sign day. Oh, it's totally days, changed. It's, it's really depressing. It's we'll have really to depressing. take the numbers from today and add them up with the numbers from December and make ourselves feel a little bit better. But yeah, it was and a very weird And I still don't day. think they're going to hit it. But No, yeah, I don't think so. But it's, um, it's, It sucks that way. I yeah. do like, I like the pageantry almost. I mean, half of the joy of sports is pageantry, right? Especially college football. So I like the pageantry of having a day, right? So I wouldn't get rid of the day. But if they want to do an early period for players... For the sake of players, it cannot be in December. Make it in make it in end of July, August, and and that would fix a lot. Here's a proposal to maybe maybe this is overly complicated, but what if they did something like a player could choose to to black out? So like part of the reason of letting players sign early is so that players can end their recruitment early, so that teams will stop pursuing them. Um, a player could almost put itself like if a player could put himself on a do not call list or a no contact list uh, when they feel like their recruitment is up, but then they don't sign the LOI and lock themselves into so that they could like, you know, sign, the, put themselves on the block list in August. How, how do you manage that? I don't know, but you know, it's, it's a thought. It's a thought where then you could at least punish coaches for contacting a player uh, against their wishes, more or less. Um, but then you wouldn't also lock a player into you signed your LOI in August and then everything changed over the fall. And then you're stuck, though, because you went did the LOI thing. And, you know, that that's always my concern is guys who sign early are setting themselves up to have their situation pulled the rug pulled out from under them. Um, on the other side of it, it does protect them because then coaches can't pull scholarships. So I, I don't know. It, it's complicated. To say the least, uh, let's go to Dave's second question. Is this the lowest USC recruiting has ever been in the last 20 years? Last 30 years? Uh, He asked this before signing day. Uh, So, yes, it is. Uh, SC is ranked 18th with 249 recruiting points according to the 24-7 sports composite. For the first time, there are no five stars in the 24-7 sports composite that USC has signed. And, Alicia, you kind of tabulated some previous class stuff if you want to get into that. Yeah, so like you pointed out, uh, the class has 249 points uh, as of Wednesday, and and that could get lower uh, if Puka Nakua 
signs elsewhere as expected. And that is definitively the lowest class in the recruiting era. So in the last, let's call it 20 years, uh, can't go back 30 years because I don't have data for what the recruiting was like in the 90s. Uh, but, you know, for instance, last year, the 90s were 30 years ago. Jeez. Right. Right. Yeah. How trippy is that? Uh, so in 2018, USC's class tallied 291 points. So that's a significant drop off to 249. The lowest that USC had had, they, they had that five-year stretch where they were all top 10 classes. And 2013, that class had 256 points, which was the last time USC wasn't in the top 10. But as we talked about, that 2013 class, was it was just really tiny because it was sanctioned hit. So they could only bring in... Um, you know, they they didn't have 10 scholarships in that class. So it was tiny, but it was mighty. There were five stars galore. It was a ridiculous class. So set that to the side. I don't think it's an accurate representation of recruiting issues that USC had. Um, you go back further and further and further, and the lowest tally that USC has had in the last, since 2002, which is essentially the recruiting era where there's data to back this up, was 250 points. That 2002 class with 250 points, though, it had 21 commits and it ranked number eight in the country. So it's a whole different ballgame we're talking about. Uh, 249 points and 18th in the country. Yeah, it's definitively the worst class USC has ever signed. Yeah, which sounds utterly terrible. But then when you consider 18th is what a lot of schools would be their best ever. And then it's like, oh, it's not so bad. Exactly. Again, like everyone's raving about Washington's class. It's literally one spot ahead of USC right now. That tells you how great things have been for USC historically. Exactly. A little, and th- bit, little bit of context. That's the right lens to view it through. It's bad for USC, but what's bad for USC is great for most other schools. Yeah. A tweet from Lee. Guys are decommitting and saying the reason is the coaching staff or a lack of a winning attitude on campus. Do you see this reputation having a lasting impact on recruiting going forward as long as this coaching staff is in place? I think it's going to depend on how this season goes, right? If they win a bunch of games, people are going to be like, oh, this, they've got that winning culture. And if they don't, then people are going to say that they don't. I don't know so much that it's it's culture as the uncertainty around a, a kind of a lame duck coach has that effect. And the longer that... But it, but if they win this year, he, it, then, then you would say that he wouldn't be a lame duck coach. And if they lose this year, then he will be gone and and you'll get a, you'll get a new staff that then creates its own... Uh, buzz around it so yeah I don't know I don't know if this is like a the la- the lasting impact is is more about you then have to build back up but I don't I don't think that's necessarily an issue if USC can go out and prove that it's not an issue yeah it's all about fixing it and getting better I, I think that's going to be fixed so many issues if SC can just rebound find a way to rebound uh, a tweet from Marcus uh, realistic best guess. What is it going to take to purge this entire, entire coaching staff and start over before 2020? Um, I don't know. Seven wins. Seven wins or less. I think it happens. Eight wins, potentially eight wins or less. And I think it happens. I wouldn't put it at wins. I would put it at USC has to not win the South. That's, that's a good way to put it. Because if USC wins the South, then Lin Swan can still point to, well, they won the South. And the- uh, bar, but see, there's there's two ex- exceptions here. If SC goes ten and two, it doesn't win the South. I think he's that's, safe. That's absolutely yeah, yeah. If if SC goes six and six and wins the South, that's a different story. Like those two things can both totally exist in the Pac-12 because the Pac-12 is makes no sense. Right. So yeah, I. 
I, I think realistically, it's if they don't get back to the level they were at two years ago, right? If they're not a nine or ten win team, then I think that there's all the grounds in the world to make that change. Also, uh, let's uh, just yeah. really, really quick. Also, attendance might have something to do with this. Uh, if people Perhaps. aren't if people aren't renewing season tickets, if people aren't attending games, the optics of that may weigh. So well, Clay Hilton got heckled recording Trojans Oof. live tonight. Yeah, that's cringe. Don't do that, guys. If 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 you're in that position, like, just don't. This reminds me. Did I ever tell you my story of when I heckled a uh, uh, a coach? I did at a hockey game. You, I yeah. did. <laughs> yes, you were a punk little kid, and. Mm-hmm. You just heckled the don't coach, do it. and the coach snapped back at me at a, at a minor league hockey game once. Fun times. Uh, let's go to a tweet from uh, Michael Bixon, who says, "How long can we keep enduring these terrible program missteps, mistakes, horrible decisions? How long till we are the laughingstock of college football? Oh wait, we're already here." <laughs> I. Honestly, I don't think USC is the laughing stock of co- laughing stock of college football. I think USC is in a dip, uh, and I think USC is poorly managed and embarrassing at times. But I also am going to be repeating a mantra this entire off season. Remember that mantra: things are never as bad as they seem, nor as good. Things are not as bad as they seem right now. I don't think the n- national people are looking at it as USC is a laughing stock. I've said SC kind of have become the Knicks of college football. I kind of want to backtrack that because the Knicks have always been a freaking punching bag. They've never been an elite franchise. The idea that Madison Square Garden is the mecca of basketball is utter East Coast bias garbage. But you know who the, you know who SC is? They're the Lakers. Yeah. What happens when the Lakers are good? They're amazing and everyone loves them and every other team hates them and they're flashy and they're Hollywood and all that stuff. What happens when the Lakers are bad? The Lakers are embarrassingly bad when they're bad, right? Like when Shaq and Kobe broke up, like that was nasty, ugly looking, right? The last five, six years have been, you know, really bad. They were poorly run and all this stuff, right? And it didn't look good and they've been a punching bag. They've been a punching bag this week, right? That's who SC is. SC is the Lakers. And, Alicia, what is their massive thing in common? Who do USC people hire and who do the Lakers hire? Uh, Laker people. Themselves, USC people, yes. Internal. Yeah. Well, but but at the same time, the By the Laker- way, Jeannie Buss on the board of trustees. Yeah. Uh, the Lakers are also a franchise that is capable of any moment of getting a LeBron James type figure. And they are a franchise that at any moment are capable of being, of, of having the conversation, are the Lakers back? Uh, and that's what USC is too. Like people are always going to be asked to be people are always going to be waiting to ask the question: Is USC back? And that, in and of itself, tells you that the credibility of USC is is not gone. Right. Uh, let's go to a tweet from Jackson. What is the morale of the team right now? I don't know that you can really say. I, I we haven't talked to the been talking to the players. We won't talk to the players until spring camp. That's that's when they will talk next. And what are you going to gauge from that? I don't know. You know what spring camp scrums are like? Oh, we're just working to get better and excited to be back here on the field. Excited to put the pads on. It feels like football again. It feels good to be back. Every everybody's working super hard. It's the hardest everyone. It's the hardest people have worked in my time 
at USC. Everyone's really focused on the weight room more so than we were in the past. Like literally, this I can verbatim tell you exactly what quotes we're going to hear when spring camp spring camp comes. But I do think, and this is this is just because of the mentality that athletes have. I doubt that the morale is very low. I think my guess is that USC's team is probably going into this offseason with a chip on their shoulder. Uh, you know, people don't believe in us. People are abandoning us. Bandwagoners are abandoning us. All this kind of stuff. Yeah, and it worked for the Patriots. Yes, it worked. Exactly. Every team is going to try and convince themselves that they have a chip on their shoulder even when they don't. To be fair, no one expected the Patriots oh to do it. Oh my gosh. No, no. Everyone dreaded the Patriots doing it. It was not no, all the all the talk oh. all year was about the freaking Chiefs and the freaking Rams and what they do. They didn't win. Uh, let's get a tweet from Ryan Valente who says, "How much of this Rams offense in the Super Bowl reminds you of USC's offense under Helton? Bad O line play, committed to balance, running backs getting hit in the backfield, the quarterback not reading progressions and refusing to make adjustments. Why am I being haunted? I thought this was over. First of all, that interception from Goff. Tell me that wasn't JT." It absolutely was. And this brings me to my soapbox that I will say forever and ever and ever. It's all about the offensive line. Because you can have Jared Goff look amazing the whole season when the offensive line is performing up to snuff and you put him under pressure. You take your offense out of rhythm because your offensive line can't open running lanes, can't protect the quarterback, can't deal with the blitzes, can't deal with exotic coverages, all that kind of stuff because he was rattled because that offensive line wasn't giving him any protection. And then you and get it. And then he starts throwing on his back foot. Exactly. And terrible interceptions you, late in the game. You chip away at a quarterback's confidence, and that's the interception that they absolutely throw. That was the the, the degeneration of JT Daniels was the was a reflection of, of how unreliable USC's offensive line was. And so did the Rams offense remind me of USC's? Yes, in the sense that the offensive line didn't get it done. And it's really that simple. And they didn't score a touchdown against the Alabama of the NFL. But they didn't. In an NFL stadium. But they didn't blow a 14-0 lead. So there's that. Yeah, it's true. Definitely a good point. Let's go to an email from Troy Trojan. Making a commitment to the air raid is going to blow up in Helton's face. The problem with offensive coaches is that they have no understanding of team football, specifically team defense. So this young defense will get less reps against the run in practice, and then you will ask them to cover basketball on grass, where some can't even line up correctly. Added to that fire, you put in a touch of Pendergast, who loves to give up big play touchdowns to the air. And that was with five-star players. What can we expect with this group? This has the potential to be a beautiful disaster. Troy Trojan. Now, here's the time to bring up something that Clay Helton said in his signing day press conference, which is essentially that one of the things he liked about Cliff Kingsbury and Graham Harrell is that they don't run pure air raids. They have run games. Uh, Graham Harrell's run pass splits were almost 50-50. So USC is not going to give up on that run game. Uh, Helton specifically referenced how Harrell's Personnel groupings uh, go to 12 personnel. They use tight ends. They use all these different things. So, you know, I don't know that the air raid is going to blow up in Helton's face in the sense that it's going to be a huge change. It's going to unsettle everything about USC's team. My hope for the air raid is that USC is going to take an offense that was already leaning towards spread air raidy concepts, but they were doing it in a half-ass kind of way. And they're going to fully commit to the system and go about it in in the perfection of that system and and that'll be the difference for USC. 
Um, you know, is Clancy Pendergast going to be tested here with not being able to rely on on veterans in that secondary? Yeah, but at the same time, maybe maybe that takes some of the blinders away and forces him to trust younger players who could give him a, a different look at, at a different time. Maybe it, maybe it forces him to use more guys. I don't know. I, I don't know how that's going to work out necessarily. But I think what the air raid's going to do is not going to turn USC into a pass at 50 times a game offense. What it's going to do is it's going to streamline the offense away from the the chaotic mess that it was before. And that will ultimately be good for the defense because we heard from defensive players it was demoralizing for them to have to keep going back out there when the offense was getting stuffed. Uh, so putting more points on the board, yeah, maybe you end up having higher scoring games, but your defense is going to be a lot less demoralized if they, if they know that they are the, the one gap between, you know, if they give one touchdown, then that's it. They're going to lose the game like they did to Cal. Yeah, uh, and it's just a matter of not letting that happen. Uh, you want to get, you know, 10 points better on offense, but you don't want to be giving up nine points more on defense. That shouldn't be the trade-off. You, you want to be able to balance that a little bit. Score 10 points more and give up three points more. Like, that's what you want. You want that seven-point gain, uh, if anything. By the way, rushing S&P Plus last year, who do you think was better, North Texas or Stanford? I'm going to guess North, Tex- North Texas because you're asking the question. North Texas was 39th, Stanford was 107th. Yeah. 107th! <laughs> well, that, I mean, Stanford and Bryce Love and that whole deal was a mess, but the point is, North Texas, <laughs> Graham Harrell will run the ball. All right, here we go. Uh, who had a better rushing S&P Plus last year, North Texas or Ohio State? North Texas. North Texas. Yep. 39th, Ohio State was 54th. Take that for what it's worth. Uh, let's go to an email from Dissatisfied in Troy. Thanks, guys, for the great job that you do on your show and also for bringing in Coach Hyde to sometimes talk on the show. I think we got Ryan's email. I think we did get Ryan's email. <laughs> it's okay. We'll read it. Uh, Harvey Hyde's great. Um, Dissatisfied in Troy says, My rant is in regard to season tickets. I've had my season tickets since 1995. Back then, my general season tickets it got me seats in section 19, row 7, when no one was going to games. I always hope for the best with our team, and I hope Helton, spelled capital H-E-L-L, ton, uh, does well after watching the same rerun for the last three years. The ending is not going to change. After the 2018 season, when Swan decided to keep Helton as coach, I sent an email to the ticket office telling them that I would not be renewing my tickets because I was in not in agreement with the coach and was not in agreement with the direction the program was headed. I also stated, should the direction of the program change in the future, contact me to renew. My account as a Trojan Athletic Fund member was canceled immediately after my email. Keep in mind that I sent my email before Cliff Kingsbury was even hired at USC. Had Cliff Kingsbury stayed, I would have renewed. But since he didn't, He was the deciding factor of not renewing. I do not regret not renewing for the 2019 season as USC tickets are always available online should I go to a game. According to the Coliseum update from USC, they said that all TAF members and season ticket holders have selected their seats for 2019, totally more than 30,000 seats, that the other 3,000 people have joined TAF. Of this number, I wonder how many have decided to opt out of renewing. Do you know or have any feel as to how many people have decided to not renew for 2019 or make our dissatisfied voices be heard? Thanks, fight on, signed, dissatisfied in Troy. Uh, Short answer, no. Yeah, I I don't think we're necessarily going to find out what the renewal numbers are because I don't know that USC would let that get out if it was not good. 
Um, but I don't know. We've heard a lot of people say that they aren't going to renew. But at the same time, following through on that, I think, is a tough decision for people who build their life around USC. And right. yeah. I think there are, there will be a number of people who take advantage of the fact that people have not renewed and mm-hmm. trying to get sort of opportunities there. So, like, there's always a give and take there. Uh, our friend Darlene in the Rock Crew has mentioned that her seats got better uh, yeah. because people didn't renew. And so she got better seats because of it. Yeah. And that she was happy about that. So there's a give and take there. And uh, and it'll be interesting to see when we get to the season and see what things look like as far as the attendance and all that. It'll show us something. But at the same time, like for every for every one person who's going to not renew, there might be somebody else who sees the value in getting in cheap or. Yeah, the the way I see it, I. I I think there's the renewal for this year compared to other years is definitely going to be higher for sure. 100%. Absolutely. At the same point, I don't think it's as dire as people will say um, for a lot of reasons. One of them being, yeah, if this is your big commitment, if your life revolves around USC, I think it's really difficult, uh, at least me personally. Um, my dad just became a TAF member. He had season tickets and then they told him if you want to sit where you want to sit, you got to become a TAF member. So he did. But I personally think that if you're such a diehard USC fan and your life revolves around USC, I think it's very easy to rationalize renewing because you can look at it as I'm getting tickets for life. This is short term. But then I can also totally see it as why should I give any money? Because if I give any money, I'm supporting them. I'm supporting these decisions. And if I don't give my money, that tells them that the decisions are bad and they need to fix things. Both things are true. And I think that that's why both things, I think, are happening in big numbers. I think people are going to keep giving their money because that's what they know. The USC football is ingrained in them. And I think there's also a lot of people who are upset and not renewing. And those are the people who email us. The people renewing do not email us. Exactly. And and like I said, I think it's it's likely in my mind that both sides cancel each other out. And USC probably ends up with a lower number than before, but they've also reduced capacity in the first place. So they may be OK with that, especially if they're getting money from the suites. I wouldn't be surprised if, the, if they set out a number before, like, let's say there was, you know, what did he say? 33,000 or whatever. If there was 33,000 and they were going into it expecting, okay, we might drop to, we might lose 10% just by the Coliseum changes. Be ready for that. And so they might've just allocated that decision and it might be financially backed by all the money they're going to make from the suites to make up for that. And it, and it might be 15%, but if it's 5% more than the 10% you already accounted for, then it doesn't look quite so bad as, 15%, right? Like, Yeah, but who, who knows? Who who really knows? We're, we're not um, the money people, so. Yeah, and we're, we're not trying to make excuses. We're just trying to understand what's going on. The, this uh, thing is, everything can be rationalized, so. This is true. Except murder. Murder cannot be rationalized. This is true. <laughs> uh, let's go to a tweet from Mel Cordobes. Are they going to reduce season ticket prices since they suck so bad? Uh, no, not going to happen. Don't hold your breath in that. Not when uh, they're tweet, not when they just did the renovation. Like if it was a normal yeah. season, maybe. But uh, tweet from Sean in beautiful Washington, Texas, our good pal. I really have no question. I just want to say I can't wait for Rod on God. 
Yeah. We can't either. It's coming yeah. up. Coming up in April. I'm excited. 60, 66 days. Yeah. Got to get ready. Maybe I should I, start I, rewatching. I need to start doing it. I was just talking about this at work today. I need to start rewatching all the episodes, but I think there's exactly 67 episodes. And there's on Wednesday, there were 67 days until uh, Game of Thrones. So I'm like, that's one episode per day. It doesn't seem like that much, but it is daunting. To but watch once you seven started, seasons. Yeah, once you started to do it, you'd find... Uh, you could make up days, but yeah. That's a lot of episodes. Maybe I'll do like a greatest yeah. hits. Maybe I'll go through and watch the important episodes. Maybe. More, more likely, I'm probably just going to watch one episode before. Yeah. Which is dumb. I need I need to just grin and bear it, but I'm, I'm watching Breaking Bad right now. I'm all into oh, investing in Breaking Bad. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever watched it? No, no, I, it's... Yeah, it doesn't seem like a Alicia. Show. Not my cup of tea. I, I I can only do antihero you don't so like much. You like good shows? I, I understand. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. All right, that's gonna wrap up this episode. Uh, we told you earlier that we're gonna give you a Rot Bunch Choice preview. That's coming up right now. So listen to the first few minutes of that. If you dig it, head over to Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Reign of Troy. In this Rot Bunch Choice episode, we were talking about what we would do as USC's. Um, leadership going into the offseason to fix everything. If we were Helton, if we were Swan, what would we do? So here's that preview for about five minutes. If you dig it, again, head over to Patreon. If not, we'll see you next week. As always, I'm your host, Marcus Cedar, and my co-host, Alicia Dertel. Uh, I botched that. Just give us a final word. The final word is Thrones, as in I'm excited for Game of Thrones. All right, here's the robot's choice. It is Rockbot's Choice Time, a Reign of Troy, Patreon exclusive. Hello everybody, welcome back to Reign of Troy Radio over on Patreon. This is a Rockbot's Choice episode in which we are going to talk about our plan for USC's offseason if we were Lynn Swan and Clay Helton. I'm your host, Michael Castillo. Join along with my co-host, Alicia Deratol. Hello, everybody. Hello, Alicia. We got this topic from Alex Storch, and I thought it was great. And we put it in a poll, and it ultimately won. Things we would do as Swan slash Helton before Fresno State. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to think about. It's an interesting exercise, and it's a great topic. Until you sit down and realize that, oh, that means you actually have to think of what exactly you do if you were Lynn Swan or Clay Helton and it's it's I don't know I I found it g- difficult in a, in a good way in the sense that I was trying to keep it all re- re- like re- as realistic as I could think it while also not being totally passive right yeah and for this procedure we are not including fire Clay Helton because uh, that would just yeah, it would be it would be too simple. One, and the other thing is the spirit of the prompt from Alex is, "What would you do as Swan and Helton?" So both of those guys have to be involved. You would think on this prompt. So it's a great idea because SC needs to make a lot of changes this off season. SC has talked about changes. Helton talked about it this week. When you heard all that stuff, for people who maybe haven't listened to the second to short. Are there sci- enough signs for you that the changes are coming? No. Simply put, no. No. I and I got into it a little bit in the in that second and short. I part of it is just the skepticism that USC has built up in me over the last year, maybe year and a half. But I, I didn't hear anything new 
in that in that uh, interview that he did with with Jordan Moore that Clay Helton did with Jordan Moore. So I I I thought my my takeaway from it was all these are words and they don't have any meaning until we actually see the results. And and even the words themselves kind of to me in too many places uh hit the button of or or kind of raise the red flag of talking about it and not being about it if that makes sense yeah so you want you want clay to be more like lane kiffin then yeah sure <laughs> hey it would be that's his infamous yeah. quote talk about it don't be about it yeah yeah but i or mean no, sorry be about it don't talk about it there it can is. we can we talk for a second about lane kiffin because like the more i think about it the more that like lane kiffin and clay helton parallel each other in 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 that weird way where I think you and I both agree that both of them have had seasons where they've proven they can be a good coach while and also then both simultaneously have had bad seasons. Yeah. So like Clay has sixteen, seventeen in a weird jumble. Lane has twenty eleven. And those were both like those are seasons that you as a coach can cling to and say, man, that those went really well. You have Helton's 2016. I, let's call it 2016. 2017 is a weird in betweener, but you have uh, and 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 Lane's 2011. That those were both really really great seasons that showed that under the right circumstances, the two of them could get a lot out of a team. But then they both turn around and, and 2012 for Kiffin is a disaster and 2018 for Helton is a, is a disaster. And it, and it's kind of like solidifying for me that maybe the key to being a great head coach is flexibility to be able to adjust when things don't go exactly to plan and to, to coach on the fly almost. And maybe that's where. I think Lane got into trouble because he, he didn't know how to adjust. And I think that's where Clay is getting into trouble. It, it, in 2018, it seemed like he didn't know how to adjust, which is why this is such an interesting topic in the sense that if we could impart upon Clay and upon Lin Swan the areas in which they could adjust, then they could still turn it around. It's just that if you're not somebody who is capable like of – of, of being flexible and 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 being open to the drastic kind of changes then you're never actually going to do it and my worry is that the people that are involved that we're talking about right now they i I'm, i come away feeling like they're just a little too stubborn and the the platitudes that helton had out had in that statement i feel like a little bit reek of some stubbornness just in the, my reading between the lines yeah, a little bit. Uh, let's get into what we would do and see if we can avoid that stubbornness. The way we're going to do this is we each came up with a five-point plan, and we are going to put them together to form a seven-point plan. So that means we're going to talk this out. We're going to see who's we whose plans we like, whose plans we don't like, which things we can cut, which things we can keep. We're going to have to cut three total combined to get down to seven, even though I, I guess we could cut more things and add things as we talk about them. So we, we might come away with only five in the first place, so <laughs> well, we'll are, are you goes. that confident we're just going to come away with your five-point plan? 
<laughs> no, I think that there might be some overlap in our five point plans and we're just going to like all combine them down into the same five points more or less. All right, let's start with your five point plan. Give it to me. All right. So first and foremost, uh, all of these five points are directed toward what the USC Twitter is now calling Swelton, which is the combined being of the two of Lane Linswan and and Clay Helton. So when I say things like Clay Helton needs to, what I really mean is Clay Helton needs to or Lynn Swan needs to force Clay Helton to. Um, I, I, I keep going back to the Notre Dame turnaround thing. And a big part of the narrative coming out of that whole thing was that uh, Swarbrick, the Notre Dame athletic director, quite literally held Brian Kelly's hand through the entire transition. That he was hovering over the entire process and an integral part of the entire process. So when I say all these, these are, a lot of these are Helton-centric, but I would say it in the sense that like Swan would need to be involved in, in being a force behind some of these things. So first and foremost, I would tell, I, if I were Clay Helton, I would reach out to people who know what they're doing. Uh, who are not in my sphere of influence. So Clay can reach out, you know, he's he's talked to his dad and, and, and those people in his life, but I think he needs to broaden that, that sphere. Go have a conversation with Pete Carroll. Find out what it is that made Pete Carroll great. Uh, it's like I, I can't imagine that Pete would totally shut off that avenue. Like, I, I don't think he would be uh, un, unreachable as far as advice for what worked in practice for you and what, like... What what would you what's the number one thing you would recommend that kind of thing on top of Pete you could I don't know if if Nick Saban will take your call try it if Urban Meyer will take your call try it I mean even talk to Steve Sarkeesian and Lane Kiffin guys who have worked with Nick Saban now and ask them what, what is it about Saban that works basically I think Clay needs to spend this offseason really self-examining by by talking to other people about what it is that he's doing wrong and what it is that they did right. Um, in that vein, my second point is talk to the players. Specifically, and I've mentioned this before, but Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.